Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Kyle Cox, and I'm excited to be here. A little bit about me. I graduated from A&M in 2013. Nice. A couple of you. Welcome. Welcome. What are y'all still doing in College Station? I'd be very interested to know. Um, After graduating, I came on staff here at Grace as a fellow, if you're familiar with our fellows program. Nice. There's a couple of you in here. I was a fellow for three years and then came on staff full-time in our outreach department. And during that time, I uh, met a girl named Chamilla Panilla. That is Chamilla, and throughout the first three years of knowing her, many people told me that I should date her. I agreed. It took her a little while to agree, Uh, but we got her. We got her eventually. She and I got married my fourth year here at Grace, and we actually got married on this stage right here. Um, Not long after we were married, we moved overseas to Greece. We spent two years serving in Greece and came back here in July, and so we moved to Dallas in July, and it's really good to be back here at Grace. I love this church. This church has had a significant impact in my life and in my development, so any opportunity I have to be here uh, is really a blessing and a privilege to me. So all that to say is I am excited to be here. Uh, But enough about me, let's talk about you. So in your life, the average lifespan is around 78 years. And so what I want to do is look at between age 8 and 78, on average, how much time we spend doing different activities. So for example, sleeping. For the most part, on average, we spend about 24 hours of our life just sleeping. And for some of us, that's going to be more like, you know, 30 hours. For some, that's going to be more like 13 hours. But on average, we spend about 24 years sleeping. In employment, men, you'll spend about 10.5 years just working. Women, you'll spend about 8.5. And studies show that that number is growing. Eating. You will spend four years of your life just eating. Best four years of my life. Education. You will spend 2.5 years just studying. And that's going to include college. Uh, So that that number will fluctuate whether you got your master's, whether you got your PhD, whether you didn't go to college. TV and internet. You will spend eight years just watching TV on average or surfing the internet. And on your phone, you'll spend about four to 5.5 years looking at your phone. And that's while doing other things such as watching TV or in class studying, whatever it is. Um, We have driving. You'll spend three years driving. Reading. You'll spend three years reading. For people like my wife, that's going to be more like eight years, something like that. For people like me, that's probably going to be like one year. Waiting. Women, you will spend two years of your life just waiting. And men, you're going to spend about three years of your life just waiting. And I'm sure there are some fun uh, sociological studies to be had on that one. But before we give women a hard time, men, women, you will spend six months going to the bathroom. Men, you will spend three years of your life just going to the bathroom. Like, what are we doing in there? You know, rhetorical question, obviously, but three years, that's crazy. And so I say that because we spend so much of our time, there's so much of our time spent doing things that we have to do. So for example, sleeping, like you have to sleep, can't get away from that. We have to eat. For the most part, most of us, we have to work. So if we spend so much time doing things that we can't control, then I want to evaluate my time, um, my life on the time that I can control. 
And even more specifically, as a Christian, I need to ask myself, am I prioritizing my time for God's kingdom? Am I prioritizing my relationship with God? Or do I crowd my schedule with so much that God, he just merely gets the leftovers? I start to crowd him out. And I was thinking of it this way, like my wife and I, when we go out to eat, we generally split our meals. I was thinking it would be Kind of messed up if when the meal came, if I said, hey, hang on a second. And I ate and ate until I was full and there was a little bit left. And I said, hey, you can have the rest. Like that would be a messed up thing to do to my wife. But the reality is I find myself doing that with my relationship with God. I fill my time up with so much. I prioritize so much that by the end of it, he just gets whatever's left over. He gets that one Sunday a week. And I don't want that to be our story. I don't want us to crowd out our relationship with God. I don't want us to prioritize so many different things that we start to crowd God out. And so this morning, we're not looking at how we can fit God into our already busy schedules and our busy life. What I want to look at is how we can recognize God as the main priority, the main focus of our life. Where all the decisions we make flow through prioritizing him. How we act at work flow through prioritizing him. Our marriages flow through prioritizing him. And priority in him invoking outreach, invoking community, invoking evangelism and giving. What I want to look at this morning is living a life that is focused on him rather than focused on self. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Haggai. And Haggai, he was an Old Testament prophet. He's going to be near the end of the Old Testament. So once you get to the back, you'll find Malachi. Before Malachi, you'll find Zechariah. And before Zechariah, you will have Haggai. Now, if you hit Zephaniah, you've gone too far. Haggai, he's going to be in between the two Zs, Zephaniah and Zechariah. Chances are he's only one page in your Bible because he's only two chapters long. And before we jump into Haggai, it's crucial that we understand the context behind Haggai. Because like all scripture, if we don't understand the context, especially within the prophets, they can come across confusing. We can misunderstand what they're saying, or we can even misinterpret what they're saying. So it's important for us to understand who Haggai is talking to and why he is speaking. So the context surrounding Haggai is of the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem. And you see, this temple in Jerusalem is such an important monument throughout the Old Testament. It's so important in Jewish history. So in 966 BC, God mandates Solomon to build this temple. And this temple, it would be the pinnacle of places of worship. It would be the world wonder of the world at that time. And God, he tells, uh, he tells Solomon that the temple would do three things. Number one, it would be his dwelling place. So the temple is where you could go to experience the presence of God unlike anywhere else in the earth at this point in time. It's where you go to find God. It's as close to heaven on earth that you're ever going to get. Number two, this temple, it would be a witness to the nations. This temple would showcase the glory of God to the surrounding nations that they would know that he is the true God, Yahweh. And number three, this temple, it would be a hope for Israel. So Israel, they believe that while this temple stands, they have hope. The surrounding nations, they're not going to come into them. They got nothing on them because this temple of God, while it stood strong, they had hope. 
And so you can imagine the heartbreak and the panic and the hopelessness they felt when the temple was destroyed 400 years later. You see, right after Solomon dies, the nation of Israel split into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, and they don't last long. They live in consistent sin. And so in 722 BC, uh, the Assyrian Empire conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. So they're no more. And then you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's the focus of our story today is the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, specifically Jerusalem, the capital in Judah. And Judah, they do okay. They have a couple of good kings and there's a couple of times where they obey. But for the most part, they live in consistent sin. Sin in the form of disobedience to the Mosaic law, adultery, and social injustice. And so God, he sends prophets like, uh, like Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah pleading with Judah, repent or judgment is coming. Repent or judgment is imminent. Judah, they refuse to repent. And so this new nation arises, Babylon. Babylon, they conquer Assyria and then they set their sights on Judah. And it's in 605 and 597 BC that Babylon sieges Judah seizes Jerusalem, they conquer the Judeans and take captive 50,000 Jewish exiles. And so where our scene is at this point is there's 50,000 Jewish exiles in Babylon. But here's the thing. They think their time in Babylon will be very temporary. They think it'll be short. Why? Because the temple of God still stood strong in Jerusalem. Therefore, they had hope. And so it's finally in 586 BC that the Babylonians finish the job. They destroy the temple of God and with it, the hope of these Judean captives. The Jewish captives, they accept their captivity and for the next 70 years will live captive to Babylon. Now where does Haggai fit in? Well, stay with me because Haggai's coming in not long after this in What we see 539 BC, this new empire rises, the Persians. And the Persians, they conquer Babylon in 539. But King Cyrus, king of Persia at this time, he realizes, I just inherited 50,000 Judeans. What do I do with them? And he was a little more open-minded. He thought, maybe there's something to this Jewish God. Best not to uh, get on his bad side. So he makes this decree in 538 BC. He says, all you Jewish exiles who are captive, you're free. You can return home back to Jerusalem. But not only this, he actually gives them the money to finance the rebuilding of the temple of God so they can worship their God, Yahweh. And so these Judeans, this Jewish remnant, they return back to Jerusalem. They return back to Judah. They lay the foundation of the temple, excited to build the temple of God. But the Samaritans up north, up north, they start causing trouble. The Judeans, they decide they don't want to deal with it. So they cease the building of the temple of God. And all the money that Cyrus gave them for the temple, they spend on themselves. And for 15 years, they prioritize self above God. They prioritize, prioritize self instead of building the temple where they can be in relationship with God, where he would be known to the nations and where they would have hope. And so Haggai comes in at 520 BC. God sends the prophet Haggai to address their priorities. So look with me starting in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest sang. Now, what's interesting about Haggai is we can pinpoint to the actual date when Haggai gives this first message. This date is August 29th, 520 BC. So if my math is correct, which it may not be because, you know, math, that means this year, this coming August 29th will be the 2540th anniversary of Haggai's first message. So go ahead, put it in your phones, and don't forget to celebrate that in the coming months. Now this first message is going to take place all in chapter 1. Chapter 2, Haggai's going to give three more short messages. But for chapter 1, he's addressing their priority. Thus says the Lord of hosts, look with me in verse 2. The people say, the time has not come, even the time for us to build the house of the Lord. So the Jewish remnant, they share their excuse for neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. They say the time hasn't come. We were captive for 70 years and we got back to Judah and we just needed time to acclimate. The Samaritans up north, they were causing trouble and I don't know. The time hasn't come. And look at God's response to this excuse in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, notice God's sarcasm here in verse 4. He's saying, You say it's not time to build my house. You say it's not time to build the thing where you can be in my presence. You say it's not time to build this important monument, this important temple, this important building, but you have had time to build your own houses. You have had time to live a life of luxury. Because look at these paneled houses. A Jewish reader would have been caught off guard by this. Because if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll notice there's not a lot of trees. In fact, it's actually illegal to build your house out of wood. You have to build it out of white sandstone. And so to get wood, you would actually have to travel to Lebanon, uh, chop down trees, chop down wood, and bring the wood back. And so for this Jewish remnant, what they did is they expended a lot of time and energy and money, the money given by Cyrus, to travel to Lebanon and hike back and build their houses. This was a sign of luxury. They prioritized and focused on self. And so the Lord's point here is he's not calling them out, of their, out for their wealth. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. In fact, there are many great men and women throughout Scripture who use their wealth for the glory of God. We don't have to be living in sackcloth and mud uh, to be holy. It's, it's not about wealth. God isn't calling them out for their time. They've had 15 years. God isn't calling them out for laziness. They had energy to go to Lebanon and back and build these houses of luxury. He's calling them out for their priority. He's calling them out for their priority. And so see what happens next. What happens when they prioritize self, when they focused all of their energy on self? Look at verse 4 with me. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is nothing to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Move down to verse 11. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. So he says twice, consider your ways. And a vanilla translation of this is consider your priorities. What have priorities on yourself produced? 
And here, God lays out the evidence that their priority on self has only produced dissatisfaction and unfulfillment. They've had all this effort on self, and they've come up empty. They've expended all this energy and money on self, and they've come up empty. They've got their fancy paneled houses, and yet they're still dissatisfied and still unfulfilled. This is what their priority on self has produced. And I want to be careful here because this isn't communicating that just because there is suffering in your life, just because there is sickness and pain in your life, that you must be living in sin. Because what we see in the context of Haggai is these are covenant curses laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 22. This is what God said would happen. So they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're cold. All of this are part of curses laid out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So does God discipline sin? Well, yes, of course. But does that indicate that just because there is sickness and suffering in your life that you must be living in sin? No, not always. Because the reality is we live in a broken world where disease happens and it's a world that is longing for redemption. Now for the Judeans at this point, this is a result of their sin and focus on self. Famine has taken place and God put it there. He put it there to demonstrate that their priority on self only leads to dissatisfaction. Verse 11 and 12 tells us that the worst thing they could possibly do is be totally committed to self. And the same is true for us. Because God's economy is different than our economy. It's why in Mark 8, Jesus says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it and find it. So you see, we can fulfill the American dream. We can have the perfect house and the perfect family, the perfect marriage, the perfect salary, the perfect kids, the perfect job. We can have it all. Which all of that in of itself are not bad things. But if we prioritize self, none of that will satisfy. We will still end up in dissatisfaction and unfulfillment. True peace and fulfillment comes with relationship with God and relationship with our Savior Jesus Christ. And so when the Judeans heard this, when this Jewish remnant heard this, they saw the evidence of their, of their priorities. How did they respond Look with me in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord their God. Now the prophets, they were pretty familiar with rejection. For the most part, the response to the prophets would be persecution, or at the very least, apathy. And so you can imagine Haggai here bracing himself, waiting for the stones to fly, or at least bracing for apathy. But to his great surprise, what happens They respond in obedience. What compelled them to obedience? Well, it's in verse 12. It was the voice of the Lord their God. It was the creator of heaven and earth who spoke and compelled this Jewish remnant to obedience. And because of this, they stood in awe of the Lord and they showed reverence to him. They heard the voice of the Lord their God. 
And so as a Christian, I have to ask myself, when I read Scripture, am I ready to hear from the voice of the Lord our God? Am I ready to hear and be changed by the one who inspired it? When I pray, am I ready to be changed by the voice of the Lord our God? When I spend time and invest in community, am I ready to hear from the voice of the Lord our God? Or do I crowd out my schedule so much? Do I prioritize so many other things that I just find that I don't have time for scripture and prayer and community? If you're sitting here this morning and you think, I I just don't know where to start. I want to prioritize God. I want to prioritize kingdom work. But I, I just don't even know where to start. Well, I just want to encourage you and say, I think these three things are a good place to start prioritizing relationship with God through scripture, through prayer, and through community. That's how you hear the voice of the Lord our God. And chances are, more than likely, it won't be this loud, audible voice. That would be super scary if it was, but it'll be through community. It'll be through scripture and prayer. So as we reflect on priority— My hope is that you would prioritize relationship with God, prioritize kingdom work, and a good place to start is here. And so that's Haggai's first message. Haggai calls them, uh, Haggai calls them to consider their priorities. And chapter two is going to build upon chapter one. He's going to give three very short messages. And chapter 1 answers the question, how do I prioritize God? And chapter 2 is going to answer the question, what should we expect when we prioritize God? What should we expect to happen and how should we respond to these expectations? So expectation 1, when you prioritize kingdom work, you should expect discouragement and respond with remembering. Look at verse 3 with me. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage and work, for I am with you. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. So do not fear. Once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and shake the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So here's the picture. They start building the foundation. They, they obey the voice of the Lord, their God. Uh, they're building on to the foundation, but something happens. They become discouraged. And so this message, which takes place three weeks later, we find that something has robbed them of their joy. And what's interesting is this is during the week of Tabernacle. And throughout Jewish history, we see there are several feasts and celebrations to remember and commemorate God's faithfulness uh, to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. And this was one of those celebrations. And the Feast of Tabernacle was to remember and recognize God's faithfulness when he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. It was also the week of the grape harvest. So the picture here in this scene would ideally be this Jewish remnant excited, celebrating God's faithfulness. The wine is flowing. It's this big party. They're building the temple of God and it's this joyous occasion. But something has robbed them of their joy. They find themselves discouraged. You see, what's happened here is this older generation, 
This generation who remembers the glory of Solomon's temple. They see the rubble coming together on what will be this future temple. And they think it's, it's just not the same. They're comparing the new with the old. In fact, Ezra chapter 13 tells us that the older men and women were actually weeping because they were comparing this new temple, this thing that they're building, to the glory of Solomon's temple. They're saying it's just not the same. It's not like the old temple. And if I could bring any comfort to them, I'd say, I get it, because I'm a Star Wars fan. And uh, I love the original trilogy, and I, I, I get it. I, I wasn't born or alive when the first three came out, uh, but I find them very nostalgic. My family, we watched it growing up, and I, I really love the original Star Wars. And even the prequel trilogy, I love the prequel trilogy. I hear the groans, I get it. I hear you. The acting is not great. The dialogue is very below par. Hayden Christenstein as Anakin. I get it. But I still find them very nostalgic and I still enjoy the story. But this new trilogy, you know, the one Disney's just put out, I just can't get into it. I watch it and I'm like, ah, it's not like the original. It's not even like the prequel trilogy. Uh, And did I see the last one that came out last month? Of course I did. I'm a human American. Of course I saw Star Wars. And you know what? They could put five more movies out this month and I would see them all opening night. I'm a sucker. What can I say? Uh, But I just look at it and I'm like, it's just not like the original trilogy or even the prequel trilogy. So if I could give any encouragement to these this Jewish remnant who are discouraged, I'd say, I get it, because I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, What we see what's happened is this older generation, their discouragement has turned into bitterness, and the bitterness has seeped into the younger generation. They don't see the fruit of their work, and so they become discouraged. And I can really resonate with this, because my wife and I, when we moved overseas, we were excited to start movements. We were excited to see Greeks come to know Jesus. We were going to start movements in Greece, and it was going to be this incredible, big ministry. But as the days turned into months, what we saw was little to nothing. We were seeing no fruit. We were seeing no movement. We were seeing no response. And I became discouraged. And my discouragement, it became bitterness. My bitterness, it seeped into the team. And so what did we as a team have to do when we weren't seeing fruit? What did we as a team have to do when we got discouraged? Well, look what Haggai writes in verse 4. This is what God says. Take courage and work, for I am with you. How do you respond to discouragement? You remember that he's with you, and he's enough. And he's not asking you to produce fruit. He's asking you to be faithful. He's enough. Number two, in verse five, Haggai uses the Exodus account to remind them of God's faithfulness when he delivered their ancestors out of Egypt. So you remember what he's already done. You remember how he's already been faithful in your life. And number three, you remember that your kingdom work, though it seems insignificant to you, has eternal significance. So let me show you what I mean. In verse 9, God tells them that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. You know what he's saying? He's saying that this temple you're building right now, the one that's just rubble that you're putting together, this temple, I'm going to make the glory of Solomon's temple seem insignificant. 
Because what this Jewish remnant didn't know is that 500 years down the line, King Herod was going to deck this temple out in gold and silver, and it was going to be a sight to behold. They didn't know that a young boy, Jesus, was going to be teaching in this temple. They didn't know at this temple, Jesus would be tried and sentenced to crucifixion. They didn't know that in this temple in 70 AD, the Romans would destroy it back to its foundation. They didn't know that this foundation that we can go to in Jerusalem right now and see the foundation that Zerubbabel and this Jewish remnant built. But even more importantly, they didn't know on this foundation God would establish his throne in this temple and Jesus would reign as king and all the nations would come and worship Jesus, the one true king. They didn't see this in their perspective. What they deemed was insignificant has eternal significance. And I love how Daniel Hayes puts it in his book, The Message of the Prophets. He writes, In addition, the ultimate fulfillment of this greater glory mentioned in verse 9 will be in the millennial temple. By building this post-exilic temple, the people would help advance God's program of manifesting himself in a central place of worship, the yet future millennial temple. So their work was more than merely constructing a building. It was a spiritual work which would ultimately culminate in God's millennial program. The same millennial program that we see in Ezekiel and Zechariah and Romans and Hebrews and Revelation. This is that temple. But they just thought they were throwing rubble together to build what will be merely a shadow of its former self. When you prioritize God, when you prioritize kingdom work, Though what you do may seem insignificant, it has eternal significance. And so when you feel discouraged, when you've worked on your child for so long and they just keep making mistake after mistake after mistake, when your parents who don't know Jesus and you, you've shared the gospel with them so many times and you, you just don't see the fruit of that, when, when you get discouraged, remember, God is with you and he's enough. Remember his past faithfulness and remember that your work has eternal significance. Number two, expect legalism and respond with repentance. Look with me in verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, will it become holy? And the priest answered him, no. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Move down to verse 19 with me. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless you. So this next message is given three months later. This Jewish remnant, they're building the temple. They're obeying God. They're encouraged now. All is well. But another problem happens. They start to believe that their works on this temple merits God's grace and merits God's blessing. They're believing that this good work on this holy temple makes them holy. And so Haggai, he poses this odd question to the priests. He says, if... You touch something like, I don't know, holy meat. Let's say it's holy bread, holy meat. If you touch that, do you become holy? And the priest's response is an obvious, well, no, you don't become holy just because you touch something that might be holy. 
Like if you're in the room right now and you have a cold or the flu or something, I wouldn't encourage you, would not encourage you to curl up to the person next to you who's healthy thinking you're going to catch their health. Because health isn't transmitted. You don't catch health from someone when you're sick. And so Haggai points out that holiness is quite the opposite. And so he asks the priest again, if you touch something unholy, will you be unclean? The priests say, yeah. So in Levitic, Leviticus chapter 22, uh, in the Jewish Mosaic law, if you touched a dead body, you would be ceremonially unclean. Therefore, you would have to wash yourself, sit, out the, sit outside the camp for a night, and the priest, they would have to perform a sacrifice. It would be this big ordeal, this big thing, all because you touched a dead body. And so he's saying, you don't transmit health. In fact, you transmit sickness. And so for you curling up next to your healthy friend, you're not going to catch their health. In fact, they're going to catch your sickness. And he's saying that's the same thing. You aren't becoming holy just because you're doing a good work. Just because you're working on the holy temple, you're missing the point. God, he's not after your hands. He's after your heart. And so for us, if religious activity doesn't merit grace for us, if we can't do good works to become holy, how then are we made holy? How then are we made right? It's through Jesus. Jesus who lived a perfect life. Jesus who died on the cross. Jesus who took all the shame and guilt and sin and took our place of death on the cross. Jesus who after he died rose from the grave three days later effectively conquering sin once and for all. It's faith in Jesus that we are made righteous, that we are made holy. And so when you place your faith in Jesus, anything in your past and anything in your future is just wiped away. And when God sees you, he doesn't see sin. He sees Jesus, perfect and holy. And so if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, my hope is today that you would come to know Jesus and know that you are loved by Jesus and that you would place your faith in Jesus today. And so Haggai, he warns us against legalism. How do we respond? With repentance. Because grace, it's, it's unmerited. Where does it start? It starts with faith in Jesus Christ. Number three, when you prioritize kingdom work, when you prioritize God, expect rejection and respond with representation. Now, what's interesting about this last message is Haggai, for the first three messages, was speaking to the Jewish remnant. And this last message, however, he's speaking directly to one person, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah at the time. And he says this, starting in verse 21. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of one another. On that day, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, Zerubbabel, he was part of a greater promise given 500 years earlier to King David. God, he promises David that through your line, there will be this messianic king. And this messianic king, one day he will establish his throne here on the earth. He will do away with all the powers and authorities of the earth. And everyone, all nations will come and worship this good, righteous king. And we see that Zerubbabel was part of this. 
We found out Zerubbabel in Matthew 1 is a descendant of this Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God tells him that there's coming a day when there will be a war to end all wars. And on that day, people will reject me, Zerubbabel, and they will reject you also. But I am making you a signet ring. And a signet ring is a ring that kings would dip into hot wax. They would stamp it on parchment and it would be a symbol and a representation of their authority and their power. And he's saying, Zerubbabel, you represent that which will come. You represent this future Messiah. And so for us today, the reality is when we prioritize kingdom work, when we prioritize relationship with God, we will be rejected. But how do we respond? We respond with representation. We are representatives of Jesus. We are kingdom representatives, and we represent that which will come, King Jesus, who will establish his kingdom here on the earth. We represent him. So as we close this morning, servers, um, as you... You can get the offering, uh, the communion ready in the back and ban as you come up. Um, I want us as we partake in communion to reflect in ourselves. To ask ourselves and evaluate, am I prioritizing relationship with God? Am I prioritizing kingdom work? Because when we've been saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get to experience God in a personal and intimate way. And we get to showcase the love of Jesus Christ to a world that is longing for redemption. So church, consider your ways. Consider your priorities. Because this world, it desperately needs Jesus. This world that is longing for redemption, it desperately needs Jesus. And we have the solution to that need. So let's pray as we jump into communion. God, we thank you first and foremost for Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life. That he died and he rose from the grave on our behalf, conquering sin once and for all. And so Lord, this morning, I pray that we would reflect during this time and remember the body of Jesus Christ broken, his blood shed out on our behalf. God, I pray we won't take this moment lightly. I pray we won't take this moment of remembering you lightly. You are good to us. So God, would we consider our priorities? May we be kingdom representatives. It's in your name we pray.